Welcome to Rise Up For You, a unique podcast dedicated to uplifting women in their day-to-day life, but open to all to enjoy and share. My name is Natalina, the founder of Rise Up For You, through interviews with various experts and professionals on relationships, investing, self-worth, entrepreneurship, love, and health. This podcast is committed to empowering and spreading knowledge and motivation to all. Rise up for you, be better today than yesterday, and prepare for a greater tomorrow. Hello everyone, this is Netalina, your host of the Rise Up For You podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm incredibly excited because we are going to be speaking with Wes Moss. He is the host of Money Matters, the country's longest-running live call-in investment and personal finance radio show. Really, really excited to talk with him today. Anytime we get to talk about investments, financial security, retirement, your future financially, it really, really is exciting because uh, it's something that we want to make sure our audience gets the knowledge and content on. So today, again, we're going to be talking with Wes Moss. He's a chief investment strategist at Capital Investment Advisors currently manages more than a billion dollars in client assets, making it one of Georgia's largest fee-only investment firms, according to the Atlanta Business Chronicle. You have probably seen Wes on US Today, Forbes, Time, The Wall Street Journal, and Yahoo Finance, and he released his book, several of them. One of them, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think, The Five Money Secrets of the Happiest Retirees. And today, we're going to talk about just that. We're going to dive into the secrets of retiring happy and your relationship between money, happiness, and how you can make sure that you're set to go. Rise up for you and enjoy this episode. Wes, thank you so much for joining us here on the Rise Up For You podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show. We always like to start off the show by letting the audience get to know our guest. So can you tell us about yourself and what it is that you do? Well, Nana, thanks for having me on and to talk with your audience. And I, I would say that I have somewhat of an entrepreneurial career. I uh, kind of was an entrepreneur as a kid and went to University of North Carolina and then uh, ended up doing an internship in the financial investment space when I was at University of North Carolina and, and ended up uh, in the financial industry in personal finance. So again, I'm uh, a, a financial advisor, the only financial advisor. We have a firm that I have a few partners with here in Atlanta, which is our home base. We have an office in Tampa and Del Mar uh, out in your neck of the woods. And um, we continue to grow. And so we serve about 2,000 families around the United States on a what's called a fee-only investment advisory basis. And it's just a really fun career to be able to help folks um, maximize uh, retirement and early retirement. Uh, I do a bunch of media stuff. So I work for WSB Radio, which is uh, WSB Radio and TV and the newspaper here in Atlanta, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So... I write for them. I do a show called Money Matters uh, every Sunday. I've done that for almost 10 years now on radio. Every every Sunday morning, before I had kids, I started it, and now I have four little kids. So a lot's changed, but I'm still doing Money Matters, still managing assets for clients, um, and it's a lot of fun. 
I love that. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about, but I'd love to know before we before we you know really dive into the meat of the episode is how did you get into this field? I know you mentioned when you were younger you had the entrepreneurial spirit. So was it just kind of you know it all just fell into place, or was there something really specific that happened amongst your journey that you were like, this is what I'm meant to do? You know, I'm meant to help you know with finances and make sure that families and people really get you know set up for their retirement and and their life track. Well, it's a fascinating question you ask because I don't know if I believe that we are destined to do a couple different things in our life, and there, uh, I ended up in this vein of being a financial advisor, and it was mostly because I was looking for a way in, at a really early age to build my own business. But when I was in my twenties, in the nineteen, in the mid nineties, let's say. Uh, after graduating high school and going into college, University of North Carolina, it was when you're young. It's and, and I'm not a technology guy, so you know, I wasn't a coder at age 19 that you know figured out something called Facebook. So I, I had to get into the, the business world, the finance world, and that usually takes some sort of time with a big company to learn the ropes. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a, a, a consultant for a big consulting firm or go into management consulting, but I knew I wanted to do something that was half analytical and half relationship-based and, and, and be able to build a business at the same time. And early on in college, uh, I learned about the, the financial advice industry, the money management industry, and it really just kind of fit all those things together for me as a career. And I ended up doing an internship while I was in school as a junior, uh, and I, I loved it, and, and, and that's where I ended up right out of college. Was the, the only real job offers I got were all within the financial industry. So maybe that kind of told me something, and, and I think that's because when you get hired, when you're looking, when, we're, when uh, firms are looking at um, college students and they're looking to bring in new people, they want somebody that is finance-oriented, but also entrepreneurial, because this is a very entrepreneurial career. Even if you're with a big firm, a lot of it is self-directed. A lot of a lot of the financial industry is very entrepreneurial. And then I've always wanted to go completely out on my own and have my own firm and not be part of one, one of the big banks. And I was able to do that about 10, 9, 10 years ago joined up with some other partners who had already started something and we were a smaller firm and now uh, we manage uh, at the time we were around 300 million dollar uh, firm now we're a two billion dollar firm and you know it's been, we've come a, come a long way but it's a really great career to kind of mix all those things together I love that so your topic I, I was mentioning to you off air is really important because we find that you know there's a there's a scarcity of experts out there in the financial world that really know how to sum it up in a language that I guess the ideal person would understand. And, and because of that, I find, and this is now just my opinion, is there's quite a few people, especially women, that kind of stay away from the idea of finances and financial planning and retirement and 401k, and they don't have a really um, strong sense of what that looks like, even though it is incredibly valuable for their future, for their family. Um, you know, I was just talking to somebody uh, uh, in regards to my planning and my 401k and his response was, I can't believe that you're actually wanting to get in depth with me because there's very few people that really know what's going on when it comes to, to their plan. So 
I'd love to kind of hear from you, you know, obviously why it's important and then dive into a little bit of, of how we can make sure that we're on the right track and we're, you know, doing the right thing. We're building a healthy relationship with, with finances and money and preparing, you know, for our retirement and our future. That's a lot in that question, but. <laughs> there is, but let me, let me start by something that I just was writing about in response to something Susie Orman was touting, and I just read it this week. So this is kind of a brand new thing. Everybody knows Susie Orman. I think pretty much everybody everybody loves Susie Orman. And um, she came out with an article that basically says if most, almost everybody in America really needs to not retire until age 70. And to me, it's a kind of throw up the kind of tears on the back of my neck. I was kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, that's, uh, I know what she's saying, and yeah, make, you can intuitively or empirically, it makes some sense. But what she's really doing by saying that is she's just touting Wall Street's work until you die mantra. And, and, and that's what's interesting about the financial world, to give you a, a context of how uh, Wall Street has marketed for years, they market through a uh, a lens that of fear, and kind of, there's a lot of fear mongering that goes on. And arguably, your finances can be daunting. It seems like a real, it's complicated, is um, to implement. And then the thought of thinking when you're in your twenties or thirties that hey, I've got to retire in, in 20, 30, 40 more years. It's just so far out. Our our mind our you know, um, genetically, let's just say, we're not wired to think out 20 and 30 years. We're wired to think about, you know, how we take care of ourselves over the next week. And so you put all that together and you get, a, you just have this soup of, of, of emotional and empirically complicated things to worry about. And what, by the way, doesn't seem like it ever, the world never seems to get less scary, does it? It's either, if, if you have new politics, we have New geopolitical concerns. If it's not, you know, an issue in the Middle East uh, or Iraq, it's an issue in North Korea. So it's a scary world we live in, and all of that impacts how we feel about money and our finances. And quite frankly, it makes it really tough. Um, so I guess I would start by saying, and, and uh, the reason I bring up Susie Orman as an example is that th this kind of rhetoric just perpetuates how hard it is to get a grip on your finances. She says, "Hey, you, you, you can't." Take, don't take Social Security until you're 70. You've got to lay the foundation today, foundation today, so you can work at least until you're 70. Which, uh, again, that's that that's scary to me. I've I've advocated the opposite of that, trying to help folks retire on the earlier side. But again, to try to get back to answer your question is that um, it's a complicated, scary world, and Wall Street likes that because you have to go to them for help. Yeah. The, the other thought, though, is why I think it's getting a little bit more democratized or easier for folks in their 20s and 30s. They're just starting out investing, or 40s. A lot of folks don't start until they're in their 40s or 50s. And to your point, if you don't have a million dollars, most big Wall Street firms, they honestly don't want to deal with you. They really don't, because their profit, their, their business model is predicated on it takes X amount of time. It takes me X amount of time to deal with somebody with a million. It takes me just as much time to deal with somebody with a hundred thousand. So as a as publicly traded companies, 
these big investment firms have continued to go up, 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 upstream to say, well, a lot more profitable deal with people with a million, five million, ten million than it is people with fifty thousand, a hundred thousand. So most of the industry has skewed in that direction now. And that's why I think it's hard to your comment. Hey, I went and talked to a planner. I'm surprised that they even talked to me. The good news is, in the last, let's call it really only five years, uh, big companies like uh, Wealthfront and Personal Capital and Motif and uh, Betterment have, uh, have helped bring down the cost of investing, brought up the access to solid investment portfolios and philosophies, and made it available for people that, that are kind of just starting out. So you're going to get an account with a lot of these firms for five grand, ten grand, really just starting out and getting good low-cost low advice that really 10 years ago, most people's only real option was either do it completely on their own, go to Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, uh, or, um, well, completely on your own with a discount broker or go to Vanguard. Today, there's some other options because technology has brought down the cost of investing and increased the access to high, higher quality advice. Yeah, I, that, and, and you're so true about um, you know being a larger company and making millions. And there is a huge gap of people that I think feel a little bit discouraged because they're like, well, I don't have you know a million dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I do have some money, and I want to try to figure out what to do with it. And there's not you know a lot of guidance there. Yeah, I mean, the reality here is that again, I worked for one of these really big companies in the beginning of my career, and it wasn't. It, Let's go back about 10 years or even 15 years ago, they were already starting to outsource clients that had below a certain dollar amount. So if you had less than $100,000, you were moved from an advisor to a call center. And then if you had less, and then it evolved to if you had less than $250,000, you were outsourced to a call center with someone you don't even know. Mm. And, and that trend just continued. To, to move higher and higher and higher. Fortunately, it, what's starting to really fill that gap are what are you can call these robo advice. They're called uh, robo advisory firms uh, or robo advisors. I refer to this space as digital advisory firms. And actually, we have we started a digital advisory firm back in 2008 uh, called Wella, means wealth in old English. And again, it's a way to have much smaller clients, better technology, so that you also have an advisor, not just a robot, not just an algorithm, but have an advisor that's helped in a, in, in, in a large degree by the efficiencies that technology brings, so that they can help us. They can have a client base and get to know a lot of families, even though they're dealing with much lower dollar amounts. So I think that's a really good news. That's a really good thing for the millennial generation uh, who's approaching their, you know, their, their 30s and mid-30s even, it's really good news that there is good low-cost advice that's out there uh, uh, today and there wasn't five and ten years ago. Hmm. Uh, Wes, I know you do a lot of work with um, you know, the secrets and the relationship between money and happiness, and I'd love for you to, if you could give us you know, a couple of traits that um, I guess are different between those that are unhappy retirees and, and those that are happy retirees. You know, what are some things that, you know, if we want to be a happy retiree, which I think we all want, what should we be looking for and what do we need to be doing? 
there's always this debate. It's I thought I don't know why I've always thought about this, but as, even as a kid, I always thought of the relationship, money and happiness. What is it? How much money does it take to buy happiness? How much do I need to earn when I grow up, be in good shape or be happy? And I've always thought of that. And I and I always go back to that. I think a really powerful film. I keep this one little movie ticket in my memento box where I keep like my first Father's Day card. And, yeah, let's call it mementos, uh, sentimental thing. Um, and I keep the movie ticket stuff for the movie The Pursuit of Happiness that came out in 06 with Will Smith. And it's a story, true story, San Francisco, Chris Gardner, doing really well in his career. The company went out of business. Next thing you know, this guy is homeless. And he had a little kid, you know, five-year-old at the time. And, and the, it, it really speaks to the, how fragile most people are economically. Even people that are doing really well, you know, are one or two months away from not being able to pay the rent, not being able to pay the mortgage. And that's a, that's a scary environment. So that's why money is so emotional. And I think of that, and I start my book, You Hire Sooner Than You Think, out with this little, this quick anecdote, because it, it I think it really speaks to how scary money can make people feel or how scared and nervous it can make you feel because everybody knows a story like that. And, and uh, so I did a lot of research around this. I wanted to find money. Uh, I wanted to find the traits of happy retirees and compare them to traits of unhappy retirees. And there's some very significant evidence that I found that I write about that shows me that, yeah, money does buy happiness. Plain and simple. And it might, happiness might be the wrong word for it. It might be some mind. It might be comfort. It might be um, a, a sense of security. In the, I call it happiness. General well-being. General sense of well-being. And the answer is, that, yeah, money by happiness, but it's for a number financially or fiscally that's a lot less than I think people think. Go back to my uh, original uh, bullet, or my talk, my point about Susie Orman. There's a lot of fear monitoring. What is she coming out and saying? She say you got to work till you're 70. That's a little daunting to me. It's like it's basically saying, well, there's no way for anybody to really save enough to actually retire. So you basically have to work all the way to your 70, and then you can take Social Security. And oh, by the way, you won't even break even on your Social Security. You wait till 70 until your early 80s, 81, 82, 83, depending on what your payments are. And by that point, your life expectancy is about that same too. So what you're saying, if you wait to Social Security at age 70, you're basically saying you're going to break in at 82 uh, and you're going to die at 82. And that's, you know, that's, that doesn't sound very fun to me. It doesn't sound like a fun retirement to me. So uh, I think my point in all of this is that money can buy happiness, but it's for a lot less than we think, number one. Number two, th there is a point where when it's not a giant amount of money that Money doesn't buy any more happiness. So there, I call this diminishing marginal happiness. We got it. We, we in America, because our cost of living outside of really expensive cities like San Francisco, New York City, most of America is pretty darn affordable. And we can live on, and these are some of the things I talk about in the book, the, the median to get to of the happy retiree versus the unhappy retiree is, is $500,000. Mm. And that's a lot of money. No, 
But it's very different than 10 years ago articles saying, you know, you need at least a million dollars to even begin to think of retirement. I've read articles that say you need 2.3 million to retire. You need 3.6 million to retire. Uh, you have work till you're 70. And to me, that's just saying, you know, that helps. That what that does, that messaging, and a lot of it's from Wall Street, is a messaging of just quit before you ever get started. Yeah. And that sucks. So, so the point I have in this book is that a lot of these check, these financial checkpoints, are not that. Daunting to get to, at least they're more realistic. Number one, so 500,000 is one of them. Uh, happy retirees, by the way, pay off mortgages, are getting closer to paying off their mortgage by the time they approach retirement age versus unhappy retirees. There actually is a big differential between numbers to pay off mortgage remaining uh, in the happy group versus the unhappy group. Um, Happy retirees have, have thought ahead and have developed several different income streams. So three to four different ways they're going to pay for retirement versus uh, one or two, the unhappy group. Um, and, and, and anecdotally in the book, happy retirees, as an, this is an example for kind of consumer behavior, happy retirees take more vacations than unhappy retirees. So the average happy retiree takes 2.4 vacations in any given year. The average unhappy retiree takes 1.4. So there's an entire extra vacation in there that the happy group is able to take and puts value on taking uh, versus the unhappy group. You can say, oh, gosh, the, they have more money. They're, that's why they're happy. And that's why they're thinking of a vacation. Sure, you can make that argument. But what the way I look at this is that they have placed value on life experiences and using the money they have for fun and life experience relative to, um, and they put a priority on that relative to the group that doesn't. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this money by happiness or not. I think the overarching theme that I, I came away with in my research is that money does buy happiness for a lot less, but for less than we think, it's attainable get to these several different traits that I talk about in the book that I think are so important. And, and it's really easy to do if you just start early. That's, that, is, that is the number one key to financial planning. And, and you don't need to start at 20. Quite frankly, uh, there are a lot of folks I work with today who are 60 that didn't even start until their 40s. Um, so, but the answer is we, we all want to start at least thinking about this and doing something whether it's saving 200 bucks a month into a Roth IRA, we all want to start doing something as early as we can, but it's never too late to get started. So what would be, what would you say is like the very first step that we should do? So let's say, you know, we, you know, we're listening to this episode and we're like, okay, I don't have anything right now. I haven't started any financial planning. What's step A? Face up to your finances. And, and that's easy to do. Uh, you can go, and I'm not advocating these other companies, obviously, because I have a, a digital robo-advice firm or a digital fir firm and a, a tradition, more traditional investment firm, but I, I still cite companies like Otif, uh, a company like Mint, uh, a, a company like Personal Capital, Betterment, or Wealthfront. These, these are, a lot of these are my competitors, but you don't have to have any money to go deal with these companies and you can just set up an account and start tracking what you have. So even if it's, you've got a, a 500 bucks in your checking account 
and two or three credit cards, you can at least start tracking everything in one place. And I think that that is the first step that every single buddy, every single person listening today should do. If you've already done that, then you start thinking about, well, what are some of these, there's a lot of, there's some differences between the, all these other firms. Uh, some of them are better about helping you get out of debt. Some are help you about, some are better about helping you get started in investing. Wella, which is spelled W-E-L-A, my website for that is getwella, G-E-T-Wella.com. It's, it's again, me, wealth in old English. But you don't have to pay anybody anything to use Wella. You go on there, you link a bunch of different bank accounts, investment accounts, your property, and, and, and it'll, we'll bring in a, a, an estimate of your property value. And you can just start tracking your net worth. Uh, just getting a sense of your net worth, your assets relative to your debt is really easy to, easy to do in the world the world of technology we have today. Mint, again, a competitor of ours, Wella, is what we do. You just you link your bank accounts or investment accounts, and the portal will bring everything together and show you uh, your net worth. And that's the, that's the very first step that everybody needs to do. Okay, I love that. Wes, thank you so much for your time today. I'd love to jump into the power section of the interview. Can you tell us yeah. one book that you've read that's had a massive impact on your life that you would recommend to us? I don't know if anybody, there, there are, it's almost, um, I read, I would love to say I'm a voracious reader of books. Uh, I'm actually not. Um, I'm kind of, I'm a voracious reader of um, uh, research. So I read. I have, I have a couple different um, financial, economic uh, research companies that I pay. Political research companies I pay, and I have for years. And I and I put a lot of time into see their analysis of what's happening in the world. So I don't actually read as many books as I'd like to read. <laughs> um, I love every Malcolm on my bookshelf here in my office. I've got every Malcolm Gladwell book at the top of my shelf. I love all his stuff. Outliers, David and Goliath, I love Blaine Tipping Point. Those are all amazing books. But I think you probably that that's probably a more common answer. The investment books I've read I love. John Vogel's um, little book of common sense investing is is awesome. But the book that I think had the biggest impact on me psychologically and I use it I think about this book every day is a book called Words That Work by Frank Lutt, who effectively talks about how it's so important to effectively communicate what, can sh what is typically a complicated message in a really easy to understand way. Lutz is the guy that, and he's a political strategist, and as an example, he was, I guess you can give him credit for um, deeming the estate tax that we hear a lot about in the news today, which is the amount of money you pay as you pass on a large estate to your next generation. Um, he is the one that deemed that the death tax. So think about how that changes how you think about that tax, right? Whether you agree or not, this has nothing to do with politics. He was able to say, you know, look, I don't like this tax that's called the estate tax. For, for, for Decades, Americans didn't quite understand what's the estate tax? Is it a state? Is it my house? Is it my land? What does it really mean? Lots is what his message would be to a business owner: say, okay, you've got a problem. Well, I can't get uh, anything done about the estate tax. Well, 
what would emotionally connect with people? Well, it's really a death tax, isn't it? It just taxes your wealth when you die. So really, it's a death tax. It wasn't until Lutz came up with that that they got any movement in Congress on the estate tax because it became known as the death tax. It's a lot easier to make a change to this scary sounding thing. Well, we, don't, whoa, 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 we don't want the death tax, right? And as an example, that, uh, and, and I think you can apply that to almost every single thing in your career, uh, whether you're in technology or finance, consulting or media like you, if we can find words that really work and emotionally connect with people so they understand what we're trying to say, that to me is a powerful thing that I use every day. And Wes, what's one value that you've always stuck by throughout your career that's non-negotiable? In the world of finance, you've got the non-negotiable is transparency, and which really means integrity. You've got, I always remember that Warren about the quote, and it takes 30 years to build a reputation, a good reputation. It can take 30 seconds to lose it. And I've always thought, it's always been in the back of my head ever since I've been, maybe as a kid or just in the investing business in general, is that you can lose people's trust. It takes forever to gain it. Such a hard industry, the investment industry, to gain trust. You know, in the beginning, it's you're too young, then it's the markets aren't good. It takes forever to really gain people's trust. And once you have it, you can still lose it quickly if you're not transparent and you don't have people's best interests. So you've got to have integrity in our industry, in every industry, particularly financial industry. And it's also an industry that you see a bunch of laws. You hear about Bernie Madoff in the world. You hear about scams that happen. Um, the CNBC runs a show called America Green, and all it is about financial scams over and over and over. I would say 98% of financial folks in America really do care. But the two, the two percent that, that grabs all the headlines and makes it really tough on our industry. So the non-negotiable for me in our firm, and it's always been, and I've been in the business almost 20 years now, uh, is just that that in transparent integrity over time uh, is, can help you really build uh, a sustainable business. And we like to ask, you know, if you could leave the world with one final message, we call it our golden nugget. What would that be? I'm in that phase right now of family. I mean, I, I have four little kids. My oldest is 10, and I have a one-and-a-half-year-old. So, I mean, I'm in, and they're all boys. And just a, you know, the, building a life with these kids and my family is, you know, it's just the most precious thing on the planet. And, you know, I do all this and all this work so that I can have freedom. And I think that's why I love some of your main themes about relationships and entrepreneurship you talk about, meta and investing, those are the things that allow you as a person and as a, fa as, as a family member to have the freedom to be able to spend time with what really matters. So if you do your career in, a, in the right way, uh, it, I guess my golden nugget is to, to, to look at what allows you the freedom to be able to spend the time with your family. How do you use your money? It's another theme in my book. It's like, what? I think I wrote an article before I ended up writing this book. It's kind of like, what? Saving all this money. I'm saving all this money. Wall Street says, same thing. Same. What the hell are you doing it for? Well, we're doing it for our relationships so we get more time with the people we love. 
that to me is that that's really the conduit that money can enter. And lastly, as you know, the company is Rise Up For You, and that's the podcast. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, Rise Up For You? Well, I don't know if you've had many interviews yet with Atlanta folks, but Rise Up is the cheer we have for the Atlanta Falcons. <laughs> so, so I'll be honest with you, it's the first thing I thought when I learned about you. I was like, oh, Rise Up. Well, like the Falcons? Uh, but no, I, I think that rise up to me in a business and life sense is about empowering yourself to be able to face challenges because we don't grow unless we face something new and difficult. Absolutely. And that's what rising up is. It's rising to the occasion. It's rising up after we all fail and dust off. And I think it's a wonderful theme that people really can live by. I mean, uh, it's something that we can almost do in, in our daily pursuit of getting Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love to know um, how do we stay connected to you and how do we support you and how do we get in contact with you really if you know we want to move forward with some of these uh, financial plannings with you and your, and your company. So my website is westmoss.com. I'm constantly publishing articles about the very things that seem are most important in the world to investors and uh, whether it's di- where to get good digital advice, whether it's about understanding demographics around the world. I just wrote about that this week, and I'll publish that this week at westmoss.com. I explained the power of Bitcoin and blockchain technology last week on my website because I think it's so important for the future. So my re- my website under the Munch app at westmoss.com is uh, is a is a is a is a resource that uh, I think is that I put a lot of time into. And then, of course, my book, uh, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think, that obviously you can find on Amazon, subtitled uh, Five Secrets of the Happiest Retirees. But that is such a primer for people in their 30s uh, and, up, and up that can be so helpful. I've, I've talked literally to over 1,000 people that have read the book and called me that have said that um, it's just been so impactful in their planning and their, their financial psyche. And that, to me, is just like it's like the best thing in the world. So I want to continue to spread that message of, of my book and my research that's in the book. Uh, you can retire sooner than you think. Wonderful. Again, Wes, thank you so much for joining us here on the Rise of Free podcast. It's been such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Ned, and I love everything that you're doing. I wish you the very best. Thank you again for joining the Rise Up For You podcast. Again, this is your host, Natalina. We want to make sure that outside of the podcast, you're still growing and always getting continuous knowledge and our six pillars. So we want to make sure that you head over to our website, www.riseupforyou.com and take full advantage of the free resources and benefits that we have there. We have articles and contributors from around the world. We have a number of other podcast episodes, webinars, and a ton of tools and strategies and tips that are going to help you rise up to the next step professionally and personally. You can find us on every social media avenue. We're on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Rise Up For You. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Everything is at Rise Up For You, and we would love for you to join us. And definitely, you're going to want to head over to our website, www.riseupforyou.com, and get your free startup kit. We have compiled the top podcast interviews, the top webinars, and the top articles that fall in our six pillars. 
plus a free startup guide, The Six Pillars to a Prosperous Life, that's going to help you take that first step to really finding and building the life that you want professionally and personally. So again, if you head over to our website, www.riseupforyou.com, you get access to that startup kit for free. And don't forget to share. Our main mission is to empower, educate, and connect women globally. And we need your help to do that. So please help us spread the word, spread the message, share our content, share what Rise Up For You is about, and help us help you and other women around the world. Thank you again for joining us. Rise Up For You. Be better today than yesterday and prepare for a greater tomorrow.